Hi, this is Dr. Nick Hayward. This podcast contains no medical advice. The discussion aims to raise awareness of the long-haul impact of coronavirus and COVID-19. For disease updates, please go to the World Health Organization's webpages. Thank you for listening. Please like and share this story widely, as it may support other long haulers. I wish you well. Hi, this is Dr. Nick Hayward. I'm here with COVID-19 Long Haul Stories. Today, it's Michelle's story. Michelle, please tell us a little bit about yourself, particularly how you were before COVID-19 even came along. Hi, thank you. Uh, so my life is, is uh, I live in Ontario, Canada. I'm living with my husband and three kids. Uh, before COVID even came along, we were very, we were an active family. The kids were heavily involved in in sports and theatre and other activities, busy social lives. We were a family that was just on the go, um, very, very busy, but also we would have fun together. We're a family that you know, typically eats meals together and finds times when we can, when we're not busy running around after each other's schedule. I work full-time, my husband works full-time, um, and, yeah, we have we have a pretty good life here. Well, that sounds wonderful, very active family. And uh, you mentioned that you have three children. As I understand, they're in their teenage years, is that correct? Yes. Um, somewhere in, in the middle of this pandemic, my youngest turned 13, and we had three teenagers living in the house during a shutdown, which is fun in a lot of ways um, and a whole lot of fun in other ways. <laughs> but they're great. They they get along. They you know they've got each other for company. They kept each other busy, and at times they could keep keep themselves take care of themselves while we were both working. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting, lively household discussions have been very lively this year at the dinner table because we've had dinners together now every night since the shutdown, which we weren't having before because of activities. Understood. It sounds like a, an interesting dynamic. And with three teens, I imagine there are discussions that span huge, huge different uh, subject matter uh, locations, ideas. Uh, I imagine there's a lot of conversations that, that you can look back on fondly. Um, with that in mind, uh, looking back, I'd like to take us back to the time where you first started to become unwell. Uh, can you talk us through, please, what was happening at that time and how you became unwell? So it was kind of crept up on me in one way. I had a little bit of a cough in late April. I, I wouldn't even have described it as I have a little bit of a cough. I would cough every now and then and I would think, oh, you know, it's it's just the anxiety of, of COVID being around and we were being fairly safe. We were staying at home as much as we could, um, shopping trip, regular, you know, picking up takeout every now and then. Um, you know, we hadn't been completely secluded, but we'd been fairly secluded. We were spending a lot of time together at home as a family and just learning how to live this new life in shutdown because our area had been shut down since middle of March. Um, you know, we were we were planning things to do for our backyard because we hadn't had time to get things done and now we had time because we weren't running around to, to activities. So we were trying to make the most of things that way. Um, on a Sunday night, I, I know that that weekend I... Early May, starting the first was a Friday, and I, you know, the cough was starting to come on a little bit stronger. Um, disregarded. I disregarded it. By Sunday, it was more so. By Sunday night, I was tired. I was just, I felt run down, but still couldn't put my finger on it and went to bed early. And then through the night was was woken up with a, a barking cough, one that just sounded like it just wasn't right. It was it was a barking, barking cough. My first thought was, if this is the virus, or if it's not, my father-in-law lives on his own, and where the only contact he has, um, we we were helping him. We weren't seeing him often, but. We'd pick up groceries and deliver to his house. And I thought, we need to know. So I'll just go off on the Monday morning, get my test, 
confirm I'm fine, and then we don't have to worry about him anymore. And that was really my only thought. Um, as I'm driving to the clinic, I thought this, you know, this was just me being overly anxious and was going to, I was basically talking myself down saying, this isn't COVID and you're fine. So I went and got diagnosed um, and they, the first thing that was confirmed through a chest x-ray, she listened to my chest, um, was, so sent me for a chest x-ray and she came back and said it was pneumonia. Um, that was a little shock because I've never had any, any sort of respiratory illness before. Um, I've played sports all my life. I've been an, I'm just a generally active person, never had any issues, not a smoker, no, no concerns. So that, that it almost confused me and I wanted to tell her she was wrong. Um, she wasn't. <laughs> so I went home. She, she said, made it clear, um, before I get the test results, you need to go and isolate because it's, because at that stage in early May when I was still under the assumption, having read the headlines, that the symptoms were a cough and a fever, um, and I, I hadn't had a fever at that point, um, I was listening symptoms. She was asking me questions, have you had this, have you had that, and I was ticking off a little bit more than, than I realised that, that were symptoms. Um, I'd been having itchy eyes. I'd been sneezing excessively. Um, but I didn't know they had anything to do with COVID, so I had never put all of them together through April. So she had explained that to me and I was sitting there confused by that, um, confused that I had pneumonia. I came home and I gave myself permission just to rest that afternoon because I wasn't feeling worse in the afternoon than I was this morning with that diagnosis. So I just gave myself permission to rest, just try and filter all the information and just said to my family, that's it, I'm quarantining from them, I'm just on my own and snuck into bed and watched TV and kind of enjoyed the evening and starting my own confusion about it as well. Over the next few days, I deteriorated. I um, That's when I started sleeping a lot more. Um, I, I was struggling with fatigue, concentration, a shortness of breath was starting to come up. I was finding I couldn't talk without running out of breath. Um, and that's something I talk for a living, but I talk for life. I'm a talker. So even the family was noticing, it's like, you've got nothing. And the one thing that is is very far from who I am because I was a stay-at-home mom for years and years and, and was one of, was fortunate to be able to say, I get to stay home by choice. So it wasn't that I was stuck at home. I didn't do that role because I felt like I had to. And I was fortunate that our financial financial situation allowed me to do that because it's where I want to be. I love being around kids. I would have all the backyard neighbourhood kids in my yard at different points. Um, you know, everyone sent their kids to me and I loved it. I, I love being the centre of that world. It's, it's so much fun. And and kids talk, and I love that, and I would encourage it. And all three of my kids, my husband is not the same talker as I am. Um, I'll say I come by it naturally through my dad. Um, but all three of my kids are talkers, and my husband is like, that's on you. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> so suddenly here I am. I'm not even interested. I don't even want to talk to them. I don't want them to come and talk to me. Obviously, we were keeping a distance, but... At one point, they came to my door to just chat, and then after a little while, I said, okay, that's enough, just go away. Um, I just, I didn't have energy for them. I didn't have, um, I just couldn't, I had nothing. Um, I was sleeping a lot. I was in and out. I was trying to do, I was trying to turn up for work and be present. I was working from home at that point online, um, but I was also telling my work what was happening, and so they were telling me, go rest. I would rest. Um, it was about... Probably it was it was about seven days in when I noticed I could breathe better again. So it wasn't that same chest tightness. It wasn't that same complete exhaustion. Um, I was, yeah, I forgot I was having constant headaches. I was having body aches. Um, I was on, I was taking painkillers, um, just over-the-counter stuff, sort of around the clock because my whole body was aching. About week seven, I noticed I could breathe better I was still having shortness of breath. It was still, nothing was gone, but it's like, okay, I'm not down in the depths of this as much anymore. So at that point, a week into this, I was like, oh, okay, I get this. This is this really bad virus that in two weeks, because I'm not going to end up in hospital now, in two weeks, 
I'll be over it because that's a message I'd heard so much. Um, at two weeks, I hadn't, I hit that one week part point where I did actually start to go, okay, I'm going to get better. But for the next two weeks, nothing progressed beyond that. And that was something that really by, by the third week, I was like, this is strange. This is really, I didn't understand it. Um, yeah. By that point, our Premier of Ontario had said, if you've got symptoms, go get tested. Um, so I called up public health and they said, okay, it's strange you're not over it by now. Um, maybe you should go get tested based on your symptoms. And I had developed more symptoms from when I was first there. So the shortness of breath came on, the headaches, the aches and pains. All of this had become a constant part of my everyday life. Um, my ability to concentrate, my um, yeah, ability to be able to hold a conversation and things like that. It was just that's, that's where I was at that point. So with all of those symptoms and the symptom list was starting to grow. So even in that three-week period of first speaking up, three weeks later that list of symptoms was starting to be identified as a little bit longer so they sent me in um the one thing the COVID the COVID care clinic that I went to the doctor there noticed my shortness of breath and at that point I couldn't even finish a sentence without you know gasping for air um but my oxygen levels were were healthy they were a 97 no reason to concern she said but I'm I am concerned that they're at that level. And up until this time in my life, I didn't even understand what oxygen levels meant. I didn't even know why they put that little thing on my finger. I just did it as a good patient. It was never a problem. I didn't need to know about it. No one in my family has had respiratory illnesses. So I, I don't know anything about this. So I'm now learning 97 is within the healthy range. She said, but the fact I can't continue to talk. I barely had any energy at that point um, and I couldn't get through a sentence. She hooked me up and sent me for a short walk with a nurse. It was a short, slow walk and it quickly dropped to 92 and she sent me to the emergency room. In the emergency department, they saw me, they tested a few things, did some blood work, did some other um, tests and the doctor there came back. She said, this is actually what we're starting to see. We're starting to see patients who have COVID but don't get past it straight away and that tend to have symptoms ongoing. So go home, rest, take care of yourself. And she was very good at just being very empathetic but also giving guidance. If the shortness of breath gets worse, if your lips start to turn blue, if 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 all these checklists, then call 911. So that's incredible. That, that your very acute presentation to the emergency department actually happened many weeks after your symptoms started. So just to clarify for us that timeline, uh, from the time when you started to feel unwell uh, around sort of late April, the beginning of May, how long was it uh, before you had that episode in the emergency room? So that would have been, that was on a Wednesday. It was three, three weeks and two days later. Wow. So, so more than the two weeks that many sort of associate with, with uh, COVID-19. Um, but actually, astonishingly, it's sort of as though you sort of was very slowly getting worse, quite an insidious progression. Uh, and you've highlighted that the symptom list was sort of growing along that time as well. Is that fair to say? So not entirely accurate. Um, the, the most difficult period was definitely that first week. Okay. But where my understanding was is that I would continue to get better. At the end of that first week, I was not in the, the what I refer to as the depths of it where I could barely get out of bed, but my symptoms didn't, didn't my, my health level was no longer in the depths, but it wasn't getting better. So after one week, I went from sort of here to here and then I just stayed there. And then symptoms, the symptoms continue to change yeah not explain it well so I, I basically just hit that and maintain that level for a while so two weeks later when I was trying confused by the fact I wasn't better because that's what everyone had said that's when they started looking at, at all they looked at all the symptoms again I wasn't in the emergency room as like I, I hadn't had to go in through ambulance, they sent me there to get extra tests to check 
things out because if it wasn't this, what was it? And and let's have a look to make sure it's not something worse. I think at that point, because I wasn't better, because I hadn't continued improving and I just had plateaued, I think what they were trying to rule out were things like, um, you know, potential for stroke. Was it they did work on me, like how bad, how was my heart? Um, blood clots, they also looked for blood clots. Um, so I think at that point, because I wasn't progressing, they wanted to rule out that it wasn't something more severe and being overlooked. And when they ruled that out, they just sent me home and said, take care. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes uh, much sense. It's just astonishing to think that you were so unwell in that first week without anyone helping, sort of managing yourself as best as you could at home. Uh, when actually, you know, even though you had some improvement uh, up uh, around sort of week three, you're, you're still, there's still a lot of concern and there's still sufficient concern for you to be sent to an emergency environment to get the follow-up, to get additional investigations. Uh, it, just, it just got me thinking about how unwell you must have been at the very start, even though you were trooping through and doing your best to manage it yourself at home. Uh, and I think that's worth highlighting because I think a lot of people... Uh, a lot of patients, sadly, are, are doing their very best to look after themselves at home. But I think the story illustrates of just how unwell you must have been in those early days. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. What do you think about in terms of getting better? Uh, so starting to look into reasons for this around week three. Um, uh, what were you thinking about how things might go from there? So at that point, when the doctor when the ER doctor had said, we're seeing this amongst, she said, young, healthy adults. And at 47, I was proud to be put in that category or at least compared to. So I thought, I'll take that. That's when I came home and started looking into it more. And I discovered some online communities. <clears throat> Excuse me. I discovered some online communities um, that were very, had, had formed sort of a month or two before, or, or at least a month before I was on there, um, who who were sharing stories that were just so incredibly familiar to me. Um, I'm not one who likes to go online for me, uh, medical research, but I was also aware that, that, you know, people, doctors don't know. The medical system doesn't know and they're still learning and their focus is on saving lives. And my life, I was living, so, you know, I understood. And so learning from other people's experiences, noticing that I didn't have every symptom that everyone had, but I had the, the, all the sort of the top significant ones. There was, there's a body politics like website put out and they listed the top 10 symptoms. And I proudly said I scored a nine out of 10 of their top 10 symptoms, but I still suspect I was a 10 out of 10 trying to be an overachiever, I'm not good at it, um, because we don't actually own a thermometer in our house. So there were times when I felt chilled. There were times when I felt, and possibly I had a mild temperature throughout that time. I don't know. It didn't matter. If I was a 9 out of 10 or a 10 out of 10, I found my people. And so that was where I really started to learn a lot more about how normal my situation was instead of how abnormal it was. Okay, that's uh, wonderful that you found that support network. And actually, you also identified that you weren't the only one with this continuation of symptoms. How did these symptoms change over time for you? Yeah. So what's been fascinating to me is that every other illness I've had in my life, there is that progression of just improvement. Um, you get symptoms, you get the worst in the beginning, and then they improve. You are right. In, in that first week, I think I... It wasn't until I looked back at I, I really was quite very sick. Um, nothing that needed to call emergency, to call for an ambulance, but it was very, and there were some scary times. After that, those symptoms eased up but maintained for a while. <clears throat> so in the beginning, in the first couple of months, I'd say my strongest symptoms were consistent headaches. It took about five to six weeks before I could get through the day without without um, like ibuprofen or acetaminophen or whatever the, the names are, um, without those painkillers, I think it was about five weeks before I stopped taking them during the day and I still couldn't get through a night because of the headaches and the body aches. Um, so I had the headaches and the body aches, the shortness of breath. 
um, I would, my kids were out in the backyard that we were building gardens. We were, well, I say we, my suggestions and directions that my family then followed. <laughs> so I take a part in that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we were building the garden. And I was so horribly sad that I was missing out on that, that I wasn't a part of it. I'd hear them in the backyard and I, I love being around them and I was sad that I wasn't being a part of that. So I would go out with a book, sit in the sun and just be there. And after about half an hour, I'd be so tired from just sitting there and hearing them, I'd have to go back inside to bed. So I had extreme fatigue. I had shortness of breath. We ended up getting one of the oximeters, which I now know the name of, um, at home. And it was very obvious. I could feel that I was out there and it was dropping to the low 90s, um, which I know is not emergency room call, but I know it's also lower than healthy. Um, just having too many voices. When the kids were talking by that point, it was just too much. Um, and, again, I'm, I'm, I love being the eye of the storm. And that was, it's all just like too many people talking and I would come back inside. Um, sometimes they'd ask me questions and I'd be, I'd be overwhelmed by that. So there was definitely the physical symptoms for those first few months. Um, they sort of transitioned into, as the, the shortness of breath started clearing up, and I apologise, I can't remember the timeline, but I think it may have been around July, and I sent my husband, I... I he was in the other room and I, I did the oximeter just because I was having some funny feelings and I thought I'll test it because I was just keeping an eye on it regularly and I scored 100 and I had not scored 100. It had been about two months, I think. So I actually took a photo and texted that to him and I sent it to my mum as well. Um, so I was so excited. Um, I, so, so the shortness of breath was starting to go. I was, I was able by about two months to get through the night without painkillers because I didn't have a headache every night. Um, on the nights that I wouldn't take it early on, I would wake up, I would try and soldier it out and I'd tough it out and, and I'd wake up with a headache that I couldn't go back to sleep and I'd take it. But by about two months, there were nights where I didn't need it and I was thrilled about that. So those symptoms were letting up. But by about two or three months in, what was happening was my ability to, I wasn't able to concentrate. I wasn't able to take in too much stimulation. Um, there were times where I'd sit with my family at dinner, which I didn't do that for the first couple of weeks because I just couldn't get out of bed, really. And then I did, and just their talking was just too much. Um, and so I'd have to just, like, I'd eat and be like, okay, guys, go. I wasn't even involved in the conversation, but people talking was too much for me. Um, I, yeah, there were a couple of nights, and even, and they weren't starting to notice that themselves, is there was a night where I was feeling okay and still tired, but of course I'm tired. I've been through a lot. I just have to build my energy up was my mindset. So I'd sit in the kitchen as they were doing dishes, my two older kids, and they were just chatting, and it was comfortable chat. It wasn't highly charged with any emotions or any strong political opinions, which with teenagers tends to happen, particularly this year. They were just chatting. Um, it was gentle that was comfortable and after about 10 minutes it's like guys oh, this is too much and they said mum you're still not yourself and that was that was hard that was hard so there was a real concentration thing and I remember in August no it was late July late July early August timing and I was driving with my daughter in the car my youngest who just turned 13 around that time and she was talking to me and I wasn't, I had to just silence her. I said, I can't talk and listen. Um, actually, that was in early July. I remember driving her and I hadn't done a lot of driving and I put it down to that. But, but I recognised, I started to recognise the traffic we have here, it's, it's not a, it's not crazy busy and we were still in a fair bit of shutdown so there wasn't a lot of traffic, but just driving around my suburban streets it was scary to me, like, I, like, like I'd suddenly dropped myself in the middle of Manhattan driving. It was overwhelming and I, it took everything from me to concentrate, to see cars, to see everything. Not that I couldn't see, but it was more just, it just felt overstimulation. Um, and so when she was in the car with me in early July, I just said, so you can't talk, I have to concentrate on driving. Now I have driven actually into Manhattan 
I've driven in Toronto. I've driven in Sydney in the middle of rush hour after getting off a 30-hour plane ride. Um, I love driving. I'm a driver. I have no issues with traffic. And here I am hugging the wheel going, this is overwhelming, and it's just light suburban traffic. And I can't handle my daughter talking. So that was the that was the cognitive stuff that was coming up, that even though the shortness of breath was gone, the aches and pains would come if I pushed myself a little bit, um, if I had a busier day. But the concentration, the, the ability to be able to handle stimulation was just not anywhere near my normal level. Yeah. So that kind of stayed for quite some time and then there was a time I believe it was in early August or mid-August where I was driving and she was my daughter was in the car again and we were she was chatting to me and partway through I said stop and she's like sorry but she'd learned by now don't talk to mom while she's driving I said did you notice I'm driving and talking and it was this big moment for both of us this is getting better <laughs> I can do this and we actually were in busier traffic at that point um so it, it got better I'm still there, though. I, the, I would say in August timing, I had hit a wall for there was a new symptom coming up, and so I was still in the cognitive system. So this was a very funny, the system progression was very much in the early days a very physical, this is a respiratory illness kind of impact. It was the cognitive stuff that came later that really threw me for a loop grateful though to have had the online community to understand that this was also part of the part of people's experience and suddenly word recall hit now I've had that a little bit when I was pregnant um I've had it a little bit at times we all get stuck for the the right word it wasn't like that it was it was a complete block I'm trying to find a word and I have nothing and I can't even describe it to you because I just have hit a block and that was a that was very unnerving and it was frustrating. It was frustrating. I would be in team meetings because I was working throughout this time. I took a lot of time off in May to rest and I, I went slow and thankfully had a lot of support from work from that. But I was working and I worked for I talked for a living. And to just hit a wall where I can't think of the word. And I'm not sure I, I the frustration level around that was so so impactful because this is where mentally I'm no longer myself so not only am I sick and I've been tired and all of that I'm not in my I need to rest this better stage but it's like mentally I'm not there and I'm only 47 and I don't know where this is going and that was a little bit overwhelming too so that that went away with time um I would say these days I most of my symptoms have either cleared up or eased up. So a lot of the cognitive stuff has passed. I do find that I can't do a lot anymore. So what, as I said before, we were so busy as a family. It was we, my husband and I on weekends and, and evenings would be two different directions and would try and plan our lives so we could come back and meet at times. And, and those activities that I did with my kids, I would always have a social circle around. So I love driving my kid to this activity because of the parents I'm going to hang out with. And this activity is going to be these parents. And I would help manage teens because I love being in the middle of things. And I just, I love being connected to people. Um, I still find if I have a friend come over, I'm tired by the end of the day. If I, I took my daughter shopping recently, and I came home and went to bed. I'm able to do these things, but it wears me out so fast. So, and I'm, I'm trying to build up my stamina. I'm trying to go for more walks. I'm trying to do a little bit, bit of bike riding, but I have to, what I do notice is I have to be very careful how much I push myself. Um, otherwise I end up in bed and I could end up in bed for a couple of days. So, Again, grateful for the online communities because I learned from others not to push yourself too fast. I learned from so many young, healthy people who were used to running marathons that they, they would then push themselves thinking they're better because you feel like you are and you so badly want to be yourself again. And then they would then have a whole new wave of, of symptoms. And so even when I say I've pushed myself, I've never pushed myself too hard 
I've been very respectful of the fact this is a this is something you have to rest rest your point to heal instead of push yourself to heal. Um, but even it it's surprises me how many activities just wear me out that aren't aren't very intense at all. So sitting around in my home, I feel like myself, I can have conversations, I'm back on the ball, I love all of that stuff. But if I actually try and I could not step back into my old life at this point. I have to say it's quite astonishing to hear the firstly the entire range of symptoms that you had and how they came at different times over a very, very long period of time that you're describing. And here we are, even four months later, physically, the level of exhaustion is preventing you from what before for you were the routine tasks of daily life, yeah. the things that you actively enjoy, the things you genuinely want to do. Yeah. Um, uh, just astonishing. Four months in, you're finding those activities so much of a challenge. Uh, and I think, again, that really highlights how particularly the range of symptoms as well as the fact that all this time later it's still problematic for you, it really highlights how variable this illness is among society and how it's very different for different people. Um, have you seen that variation in the online community where you've been yourself you know, looking in and, and finding support? Have you, seen, have you seen a big range in responses to this virus? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I sit here feeling grateful for what I don't have. I didn't have the, the GI, the symptoms, the nausea, the diarrhea. I didn't have that. I've had some moments of nausea and because of my knowledge about that, I think, oh, here we go. But then it passes and I'm so grateful for that. Um, I laughed about that with my husband. I had three pregnancies where I had severe nausea and throwing up most of the nine months for all three of them he we've laughed and said maybe i'm just have a have a higher push away of the nausea because i live in fear of that um so i would see the nausea coming and then it would dissipate and so i haven't really experienced that and i'm very grateful for that um you know i'm i'm grateful that i didn't have a stroke i'm grateful i hear other people who they had they had conditions growing, not conditions, but they had maybe illnesses growing up that have been re-triggered. I didn't have a lot of illnesses growing up, so nothing in nothing in my system has been re-triggered. But it just seems to be this fully, you name a system in the body, um, rashes, skin, skin conditions that have flared up, that have either flared up from something that they dealt with 10, 20 years ago and haven't seen again, or they've never had and suddenly they've got this flare up on the skin. Um, yeah, so not only just the cognitive stuff for me, the respiratory stuff for me, but the GI stuff, which I haven't had. Um, yeah, so many things. Oh, and the, the smell and taste, I never did have that. And I keep hearing, well, that's how you know you have it. There's so many people that, that do have that. Um, you know, and I think what a shame. I, I read of one person who was a chef and she lost her sense of smell and taste. And I think, oh, that would have been devastating. Um, I didn't have that, but I've also heard of so many other people who have all the symptoms but not the smell and taste. So the inconsistency that it affects this person in this way and this person's system and this person's system, there's some consistencies amongst and there's threads, but it's also different as well. I think that really emphasises how, as both members of society and clinicians within society, we have to be more accommodating of the uncertainty and the yeah. fact that really for many patients, this is different between many different people. Uh, I've said that a number of times in this series, but also we have a responsibility to appreciate that it's, it's really just not the same for everyone. Uh, yeah. And therefore, I think we, we are, of course, this is because it's, it's very new. We're learning as we go. Clinically, it seems very different to anything we're familiar with. Uh, and I think what you're describing highlights uh, a need for us all to be more understanding of those who have symptoms that don't quite fit, you know, mm -hmm. or of those clinicians that do say to us, well, I'm, I'm not sure. You know, I think, I think this has really highlighted our vulnerabilities and uncertainties in both as patients and as providers of healthcare. Uh, I think that's, that's worth mentioning. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to know, though, um, you're clearly very mum-oriented and uh, you have a big family. 
very active, busy family. I'm very curious to know how this may have affected other members of the family. If if you're open, perhaps, to sharing some thoughts on that, please. Mm-hmm. So one of the things in the beginning when I was sick, nobody else was. Um, and if you remember in my story in the beginning, I had had some symptoms throughout April that I had dismissed because they weren't listed in the media as concerns of COVID. Um, and our bodies still keep doing what they always did. So um, my kids had had some funny little symptoms as well. But, you know, we're all living in pandemic times. This is times we don't know. This is times I'm still trying to figure out how to navigate. Um, so there's the two aspects of, of this. Um, my two older kids ended up showing symptoms after some big experiences, um, I'll speak to one of my, one of them decided to go on a long, long bike ride, an extremely long bike ride. And he doesn't normally do that. He hasn't been on a bike ride for a couple of years, but he was feeling 100% fine and he had all this time on his hands because school had finished for him and he took a tremendously huge bike ride and then within five days came down with the fever the cough, the the aches, the itchy eyes, the everything, like the full package. And then within a day of that, his sister also started showing signs and she'd also had a different experience herself that sort of had her adrenaline, uh, adrenaline rush going basically. And she started to show similar symptoms and I said, okay, took all the kids off to get tested. Um, they, my son actually, his symptoms got worse, but then within a week or two, they were gone. I'm like, damn, it's good to be young. Because in my mind, I'm still thinking, oh, because young people don't get this because this is what the media is telling us. They're teenagers. You know, they'll get it. They'll be sick for a couple of days. And they're incredibly healthy too. We don't, as I said, I didn't know what the oximeter was. I didn't know oxygen levels. My kids, I don't. I know their doctor only through the baby years, but I really don't see them very often. My kids don't have any underlying conditions. They're all athletic and healthy and eat well. And, yeah, they, they do really great. So I'm like, damn, like it hurts me that I'm, that makes me older. Um, and I'm jealous and I'm really happy too that that passed. My 17-year-old daughter, um, she her sentence developed sort of a day or two after the test quite significantly and same like him and they both went into and they started describing symptoms that I had experienced but hadn't fully explained to them because I had as a mum was trying to keep them up to date with how I was doing but also trying to protect them from the scarier stuff trying also not to give too much attention in describing every detail to them um, because I had to take care of myself and not live in that this is what's wrong with me, but this is how I'm getting better. Um, so I hadn't explained everything to them and they were starting to describe things and I would ask questions and they'd like, yeah, like I was some very incredibly intuitive mum who just reads their minds. But what I was doing was comparing their stuff to mine and they were both in it. So all three of us in that first week of you know, really problematic symptoms, it was that inability to concentrate. Um, Normally when they're sick, it's lie on, the, lie on the couch, put a blanket on, watch a movie, watch an easy movie. They couldn't do it. They're both like, I can't get through the movie. I can't get through the show. Um, it was too taxing. So, again, it's that, that extreme fatigue where you just can't get through. Um, I was paying a lot of attention, a little bit of shortness of breath for them, um, but just really doing all I knew at that point was just rest and keeping an eye on them, making sure they could keep breathing, basically. You know, just that worry of is this one we call 911 for them. Um, my son, as I said, got through it pretty quick, sort of within a week or so, um, kicked it and pretty much thinks he's, he's a bit of a superhero now, <laughs> which in, in part four months later with my symptoms, I think he is a bit too. Um, my 17-year-old, she followed my path and she had very similar symptoms all the way through and still does and she's still struggling with this herself. It's changed her um, ability to do her schoolwork. It's changed her ability to be social. It's changed her ability to 
be physically active and manage her stress because one of her ways of managing stress is to go for a run and she hasn't been able to go for a run for many months now. So that's been incredibly difficult to watch. Um, I'm grateful that I've had the experience myself in, in the regard that I know what she's going through. I don't doubt her. I can encourage her to just relax and learn to rest. And these are the things I've learned from myself and from the online community that this is how we're going to get better. Um, so there's that aspect that I've experienced that I've been through with my kids. I will say one of my biggest concerns is if there are long-term effects, it may just slow me down much more for the rest of my life and that's okay, but that can't happen to a 17-year-old. So I do worry about that. I don't know what the long-term effects are on her. So she definitely shows improvements. She just seems to be a month or so behind me. So we're sort of, again, we live in hope and we have discussions around that about keep resting, how to take care of yourself. And these are the things we're planning for next year when we're better. These are even the things we're planning for this winter. Um, yeah, so there's that aspect. But there's also the aspect that in the beginning, when I wasn't myself, that I wasn't able to support my kids' emotions through that as well. So I wasn't there to, to sit down and have a lot of talks. But, you know, if they were dealing with stuff, I wasn't able to help them through that. And I am their person that they go to. That's, that's my role in their life. So there were many times where I had to say, I'm sorry, I can't. Yeah, and that was hard. Yeah. Yeah, I... I I can't begin to imagine because I'm not a parent myself, but are coupled with yourself feeling so physically unwell to know that psychologically you're not, you're not in a place where you're in a position to support others is more than a double whammy. Um, mm -hmm. Everything you've described in sharing your story so candidly is someone who provides care for others, has looked after others, the whole neighborhood sometimes. And, I have this wonderful image of how things were then. And to think that at a time when, you know, your family needs you, I, I can't begin to imagine the emotions around uh, those feelings of, of inability to provide when that seems very natural for you. Um, so I'm genuinely sorry to hear that. Uh, I'm glad that things are slowly improving with the symptoms. But uh, as you say, it, it's, it sounds like you, your way of managing that is with optimism. I love how, I love how you're making plans, plans for this winter, plans for next year. You know, there isn't any certainty at the moment with air travel or, or opportunities, but I love the idea of, and actually my family are doing this too. Like we're thinking about how we can make some plans for, for the Christmas period, for example, um, almost the best of intentions, you know, the best of intentions to sort of hope uh, and, and organize for, for the best uh, with that little knowledge that it may not be quite as we intend, but we're sort of trying it. Is that philosophy, is that philosophy something that you've been holding on to this time? Absolutely. Um, I, I do that anyway. I, I, that's sort of something in me. I, I love to sort of like, hey, let's do this. In fact, um, last Christmas I said to my kids, you know what, next Christmas, let's go here. And we talked about going, going away for Christmas and that looks very much like that plan has changed or we're still not sure, so we'll have to wait and see. Um, but I love to plan things and look forward to things. One of the things, so whilst the medical world is trying to figure out what this is about, as a mum, as, as, a, as a human being living in a global pandemic, the, the shutdown at the beginning, which in in Canada happened mid-March, there was, we were trying to figure out what our kids were told at school. They were going on a March break, on a spring break, a, a one-week holiday from school, and the leader of the province said, and the schools will be closed for two weeks afterwards. And so at that point, I do what I've always done with my kids, try to help navigate the uncertainty by bringing in my experience in life, my logic, my sensibilities and saying, well, I think, you know, this is likely to happen. 
I was very wrong many times. <laughs> uh, and so we discussed that in the family and said, you know what, guys, I really don't know. And that became very much a big theme of the house. And it, it's hard because when kids have uncertainty, one of the things that I believe parents can provide is that sense of reassurance and safety within that. At the same time, I had to accept that I've got teenagers and I can't do that. If they were young, there's a lot more things they wouldn't know or they wouldn't have known at that time that I could have been far more protective of the information they had, but they had access to all the information in the media. And by denying that access would have actually increased increased the anxiety for them. So I felt it was more important, let's know what's going on in the world. Let's accept that we don't know what's going on and let's learn to live with that sense of uncertainty for ourselves. Um, so that 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 was kind of what we did in the beginning to actually not so much manage like how do we take control and, and put a positive spin on this, but how do we learn to live in the acceptance of uncertainty? Um, so we did some of that and then out of that grew a sense of, well, maybe we can do this, maybe we can do that. So when things started getting difficult, we kind of managed in the moment with and we don't know what. And coming out of that, part of our recovery is that focus on we will get better and we'll get better and we'll be able to do these things next year. So it's a little bit off for my youngest who didn't actually end up with any symptoms and so whether she was asymptomatic or whether she just never had it and we'll never know, and the same thing with my husband, um, for her the losses in her life had to be validated and next year we'll be able to do other things. And I think that was important for her to, to have that understanding it's just it's just for now and for my daughter who's still struggling with symptoms it, it's a bit of a cheer up like hey this we're going to get through this together and we're going to be able to celebrate this and we talk about being warriors next year and you know the shirts we'll get when she does a marathon again <laughs> and things like that and and for me that's part of our mental health recovery because I believe that to physically recover, we have to also take care of our mental health. And so we do a lot of work on acceptance of what is and hope for the future. I think you've wonderfully articulated how all of us have had those moments of feeling somehow slightly useless <laughs> at moments when, you know, you're just trying to provide things that you know in, in, a, in a familiar world. And then suddenly everything becomes unfamiliar because everything changed very rapidly. And I think you have a strategy there, uh, setting these milestones, setting these, these ambitious ideas, kind of finding something to stay grounded with that allows you then to, to really progress and, and actually move beyond that initial uh, feeling of, of, of uncertainty. And I agree with you, we, we, we have to become more comfortable as individuals uh, and in, within society with, with the, the fact that there are very few certainties right now. And mm -hmm. I think your strategy and your words will be, hopefully, will be very inspiring to many. So I'm really glad you shared that. You. I'd like to ask, um, this is very much your story, and I'm open to you sharing any messages for others out there who may or may not have had the virus. Based on your experiences, do you have any final thoughts for, for others to, 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 to consider? I... I consider myself one of the lucky unlucky ones. Lucky I never ended up severely in hospital or worse, um, but also lucky in terms of the fact that I had so many people around me who have been so understanding, accepted my experience as my truth, um, my family, my work, my immediate family, my extended family. Nobody's questioned me. Nobody's told me I'm doing things wrong. Um, I know through the online community that a lot of people haven't had that experience. I know that through the online community that not everyone has the privilege and the fortune to be able to continue working through this um, because they have different work situations to me. And I think we need to, my message I think is I, I want everyone to know about this. I want everyone to know that this isn't simply a matter of you get over this in two weeks. Um, or it's severe, that there's this whole middle ground that so many people, so many people worldwide are having the same experience of just being impacted long term. 
And I think when we as a society start to really understand that, that hopefully there'll be more understanding for those who are experiencing it and are feeling isolated by this experience because isolation, it's hard to heal in isolation from anything. So I think we need to understand, offer that compassion and empathy to those who need it. Um, one of the beautiful things I had from friends was let me know what we can do. And even if there wasn't anything they could do, just knowing that they were there to support me, that's where I really feel very fortunate. Um, if friends every now and then, my family every now and then, just checking how are things going now. Just checking without any expectation that are you better yet? Because that one is, is a tough, tough question to answer. Like, oh, are you over that? It almost feels when I live in my positivity of I'm getting better, I'm getting better, and this is what I'm looking forward to. Are you better yet? No, I feel worse. So even just that, how's the fatigue going? How's this going? Is such a much more compassionate question than are you feeling better now? Um, but I think we also need institutions. We need the systems to understand. We need, you know, the, the policies, the political policies around how do we support people? We are going to have so many people come out of this pandemic with long-term symptoms that are not going to be able to work for months, that are not that are going to need more medical support than I've needed for months. Um, you know, financial stress, relationship stress, these are all going to be ongoing. And if we're not setting ourselves up for that and we're just focused on how can we stop the virus, if that's the only focus, our world is going to be struggling a lot, a lot mentally psychologically and physically for all of those people who don't have the resources to be able to manage through their long-haul symptoms. The other reason I would love for the world to really start to understand more about COVID and, and the long-haul symptoms is that so many people are still believing, I'll be fine, I'll get this, I'll kick it in two weeks. And so it's okay if I get it. And so they don't have to protect themselves. And I really wish that were true. I really wish that we could just go into herd mentality, uh, the herd immunisation and allow enough people to get it, enough young, healthy people to get it, even if we could quarantine them for a little while and say, you all stay together and get it, get over it in two weeks and come back to society. It's not going to work that way because too many young people are also experiencing the long haul symptoms as well. And so this, this part of it is not an age-related thing and it's not a, a, a comorbidity, it's not a, a, a sort of other illnesses that you had. You know, I look at my daughter and she's never had anything like this. I've never had anything like this. No one in my family has had anything like this. There's no reason to say we'll, we'll just get it, that, that we would have extenuating circumstances. And in the beginning, in my family, and I'm, I'm a little ashamed to admit this, but I think I really should say it. We were of that mentality too. We were being careful, but if we get it, we'll be over it in two weeks, which was a reassurance to my kids. Let's not get too anxious about this. We'll be okay, but we're looking after ourselves so it doesn't spread to our grandparents. Um, well, I was wrong, and I don't mind admitting that, but I'm sad that I have to admit that. I'm, a, I'm sad that that didn't turn out true for myself, my daughter, and so many others. Thank you for listening. Please like and share this story widely as it may support other long haulers. I wish you well.